This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington and coming up on African News Tonight... Uh, in terms of Wagner, what we've seen is that it's made things worse on virtually all indicators. That's Constantine Govi, an analyst with Dutch think tank, Sklingdale Institute, on Russian involvement in Burkina Faso, including the controversial Wagner paramilitary group. Details coming up also. Cough and cold syrups made in India may be linked to the deaths of dozens of children in Gambia. And Chad's election has been pushed back two years. We'll have these stories and more ahead on African News tonight. But first, our top story, the push for democracy in Chad suffered a setback last weekend when a political forum organized by military rulers postponed elections for another two years. Interim and junta leader Mohamed Idris Debi is also now allowed to run for president. VOA's Mariama Diallo talked to analysts about what lies ahead for the Central African nation and reports from Nairobi. An 18-month political transition led by Chadian hunter leader Mohamed Idris Debi was supposed to end this month. Instead, it's been prolonged after a national dialogue forum last weekend adopted resolutions that pushed back elections by two years and authorized Debi to run for president. Cameron Hudson is a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. He said he wasn't surprised by the developments, but called the conference a missed opportunity to move Chad in a more democratic direction. From the outset, this was not a national dialogue uh, that met the stated goal of the junta itself, which was to be inclusive and representative of the broadest view of Chadians. It was not that. So when it wasn't that, it became very clear that it was going to essentially reaffirm the junta's uh, position and hold on on power. Danny Aida is a senior regional director for the U.S.-based National Democratic Institute. He's concerned that opposition voices in Chad are being left out of the conversation. Aida spoke to VOA on his way to the Chadian capital, Jamena, via WhatsApp. If you take the opposition groups in Chad today, a political party called the Transformator is one of the most important ones. If you see the way they mobilize the population, I think they should be part of what is going on. Aida says this is not a good thing for democracy in Chad. We are trying on our side as uh, international organizations supporting the transition, try to understand what it can do because dialogue in democracy is important. And also I think Chadians need now more support from the international community to help them deal with this crisis. Now it is also time for Chad to deal with some reforms that will allow the country to organize uh, fair and transparent elections. Another decision that came out of the forum now allows Debbie to run for president, contrary to what had been talked about when he became interim leader. Debbie took over last year after his father and longtime Chadian president Idris Debbie Itna was killed fighting insurgents. 
Hudson says Debbie is not a lone actor and there could be a number of reasons for that change. My understanding is that, you know, Debbie doesn't just represent the Debbie name, the family legacy. He also represents the Zagawa tribe, which um, has many, many influential people in power, uh, in business, in government, and in the military. And to some degree, he is captured by that group. And I think under enormous pressure from that group uh, to maintain the status quo and to maintain Zagawa dominance over the, the political and economic affairs and security affairs of the country. Meanwhile, some people feel the current international pressure on Chad's rulers is not strong enough. But there may be a reason for that, says Hudson. I think we have to remember two things about uh, about Chad right now. One is Chad remains uh, one of the more capable uh, counterterrorism forces in the region, battling both the Islamic extremist forces that are in Burkina Faso and Mali now as part of the G5 Sahel, but also continuing to do battle with with Boko Haram and uh, those forces in the in the Lake Chad basin. So it is maintaining a very strong security posture that the West uh, really does rely very heavily on. Um, and so I think that there is a sense that as long as they continue to perform that that function, that we should not rock the boat uh, internally and push for more uh, rapid or aggressive uh, democratic reforms inside of Chad. That, he says, may hold back a country that was ruled with an iron fist for decades, transition to a more democratic and inclusive society. Mariama Diallo, VOA News, Nairobi, Kenya. Ethiopia's nearly two-year-old civil war with Tigrayan forces may finally see peace talks after both sides agreed to African Union-mediated dialogue in South Africa this weekend. The talks would come after a series of airstrikes in Tigray, including a one on Tuesday that aid workers say killed more than 50 people when it hit a school sheltering war-displaced people. Fred Harter in Addis Ababa has this report. There have been reports of heavy fighting since hostilities resumed in late August between Ethiopia's federal government and the country's Tigray rebels, with dozens of civilians dying in airstrikes. This latest round of fighting has also seen Eritrea renew its involvement in the conflict on the side of Ethiopia's federal military, with the Tigray leadership saying Eritrea has launched a full-scale offensive into northern Tigray. Now, both the Tigray authorities and the federal government say they are ready to attend peace talks this weekend in South Africa, sponsored by the African Union, or AU. According to the AU Commission, the talks will be led by AU Special Envoy Olusuga Nobusanjo, who will be supported by former South African Deputy President Kumzili Malamgo Nkuka and former Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta. However, the Tigray leadership has requested more information regarding the structure of the talks before attending them. They have long criticised Obasanjo's role as mediator, seeing him as too close to the Ethiopian Prime Minister, and have insisted that international officials participate in ceasefire discussions as observers and guarantors. Ahmed Solomon, a researcher at the Chatham House think tank in London, says there are credibility questions hanging over Obasanjo as mediator, but he adds that the talks could lead to a breakthrough. 
if these talks proceed in the next couple of days, there'll be the first formal face-to-face direct talks between the conflict parties. And in that regard, there's a huge opportunity to reset this mediation uh, and to try to begin building some confidence. Whether the opportunity is seized, of course, is another matter entirely. We've seen uh, previous efforts not be successful. But I think what should be apparent, what should be key to this, is the seriousness of African partners, international community, to resolve this conflict. The Tigray leadership has insisted on four demands as part of any agreement to end the fighting. These are unfettered humanitarian access to Tigray, the withdrawal of Eritrean troops, the restoration of Tigray's communication and banking services, and the return of territory lost in the conflicts. A previous round of informal talks held in Djibouti last month broke up without an agreement after federal officials failed to give guarantees on the restoration of Tigray's services, which had been shut down for more than a year. Solomon said the South Africa talks, if they take place, will not settle these issues, but they could kick-start a longer political process that does. And that needs to be communicated through this process as a longer-term uh, process towards ending the conflict, not just a one-time uh, meeting. Uh, these talks should be seen as a stepping stone, not an end goal, not to achieve the ambition of ending the conflict, because that they won't do. Will Davison, an analyst with the International Crisis Group, says the talks are likely to discuss procedural issues rather than thorny substantive issues. He adds that any deal could also be derailed by Eritrea. Even in a best-case scenario, uh, where the federal and Tigray parties are able to come to terms on all of their outstanding disagreements, there is nothing like um, a guarantee um, that that would stop Eritrea's um, approach, which is currently a military approach. They have fully re-engaged in the conflict over the last month. Um, and there is really no indication that they're interested in a negotiated settlement with the TPLF and Tigray's leadership, um, and, and instead reasonable to think that they are looking for a military solution and the total defeat of the Tigray political and, and military leadership. So Eritrea could well be um, a serious spoiler, um, even if these AU-mediated talks between the federal and Tigray governments go incredibly well. So far... The Tigray rebels and the federal government have stuck stubbornly to their negotiating positions. But with the cost of fighting increasing every day, they might be persuaded to sign a deal that stops the bloodshed, at least in the short term. Fred Harter for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The World Health Organization says cough and cold syrups made in India may be linked to the deaths of dozens of children in Gambia. Reuters says the WHO has issued an alert to remove several products made by Maiden Pharmaceuticals from the market, including Makoff and Coxamelin baby cough syrups and Magrip and cold syrup. The medicines include two organic compounds that can be toxic when consumed. Over 66 children in Gambia have died after falling ill with kidney problems within days of taking the syrups. The WHO says it, along with Indian regulators and the drug maker, are investigating. The UN agency says the products may have been distributed in other countries in Africa, Asia and Latin America, but so far have only been identified in Gambia.
Cameroon's defense minister said it is safe for four forty thousand villagers displaced by the militant group Boko Haram near the borders with Chad and Nigeria to return home. But villagers say they first need food aid as the fighting forced them to abandon their farms and livestock. Moki Edwin Kendeka reports from Marua, Cameroon. Cameroon military officials led by Defense Minister Joseph Betty Asomo tell workers at Marua's military hospital that the government will foot the bills of all troops injured in battles against the Nigerian terrorist group Boko Haram. Among the injured soldiers is 31-year-old Damien Ekele. Ekele says he lost his left leg in a September 13 battle with Boko Haram fighters in Mayochanaga, an administrative unit on Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria and Chad. Ekele says he is grateful that Cameroon's defense minister and his delegation have visited injured soldiers to have an appraisal of the challenges government troops encounter while fighting Boko Haram terrorists. He says he is thankful to God for saving his life. The government said there are less than 30 injured government troops in the hospital, down from 60 in June. In June, Cameroon said it deployed hundreds of troops along its border with Nigeria, especially in Mayochanaga, after attacks by Boko Haram militants forced more than 40,000 villagers to flee the area. Government officials said the troops were deployed after villagers organized daily protests in front of government offices demanding protection from the military. After visiting Mayochanaga and the injured soldiers in Marwa this week, Defense Minister Asomu assured villagers that it is safe to return home. Asomo says threats by the terrorist group Boko Haram have greatly diminished to sporadic attacks that the military is stopping. He says President Paul Bia is happy that the military has greatly reduced the ability of Boko Haram fighters to strike innocent civilians and government troops have maintained Cameroon's territorial integrity that was threatened by Boko Haram. The government says about 10,000 villagers have returned within the past month, but some locals remain reluctant to go home. They say if they return, they will lack food since farms and cattle ranches were abandoned in June when the fighting was intensive. The government says besides ensuring security, it will provide planting seeds to villagers who agree to return. Boko Haram has been fighting since 2009 to create an Islamic caliphate in northeast Nigeria and parts of Cameroon, Chad, Niger, and Benin. The violence has cost the lives of tens of thousands of people and displaced about two million civilians. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Marwa, Northern Cameroon. 
You're listening to Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Pointing to the global food and energy crisis, Sudan's military ruler, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, urged the UN and its regional organizations to support the country's efforts to achieve food security with ag- agricultural technology transfer. Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, discussed the real reasons for food insecurity in Sudan and the way out with VOA Senior Analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi. Sudan has extraordinary agricultural potential. You know, it has fertile lands irrigated with you know, reliable water supply from the Nile. So for a long time, Sudan has been seen as a potential breadbasket, not just for Africa, but for the Middle East. You know, it produces all sorts of crops like sorghum and groundnuts, and soybean, gum arabic, um, date, citrus fruits. So there's huge potential for food production in Sudan. The problem has been, like other aspects of the Sudan economy, the agricultural sector has been grossly mismanaged due to the politicized, you know, corrupt, unregulated management style of the Bashir and Burhan military governments. And so this has resulted in the consistent underperformance and lack of investments in infrastructure that could improve productivity in Sudan, the agricultural sector. You know, there haven't been incentives for farmers to invest and to improve their productivity. And we've also seen in you know, the interest of gaining more revenues for their governance under Bashir and Burhan, they've leased out large tracts of Sudanese land to you know, foreign commercial producers, mostly from the Middle East. And so this further undercuts Sudan's potential for food security. So, you know, Burhan's calling for investment in Sudan's agricultural sector is ironic. He's effectively asking for the UN and other international bodies to help prop up his military-based, you know, patronage government and the ineffective agricultural system that they have perpetuated for many years. You know, a, a system in which the military controls some, you know, 200 plus businesses, including the agricultural sector. So, you know, real change in Sudan's agricultural sector, as with its economy in general, is going to happen only when the military steps down and there's a credible, capable, and accountable civilian government in place that can manage the economy and and really gain the confidence of investors that will then come into Sudan. So, Dr. Seal, with the UN-sponsored mediation failing to reach an agreement to end the Sudanese political crisis, what are the possible scenarios? The military government is facing a dead end. You know, the economic crisis is so severe and worsening. Again, this is a crisis that has been building up for years because of the economic mismanagement in Sudan, and now it's worsened with the Russian invasion in Ukraine and the destabilization of food supply and fuel supply networks and inflation. But the macroeconomic situation is just so serious in Sudan that the military needs help to get out of this. They're not going to be able to just sit tight and wait it out. The situation is getting worse every day in Sudan. The protests continue and there's widespread popular demand for the military to step down and to return to the civilian-led transition process. So there is a pathway forward, and it's the pathway that had been set up in 2019 for civilians to step in 
take control of the various ministries, set up a transitional process that will then lead to credible elections for the military to step back and focus on the security aspects of what are needed in, in a government and to really redefine their role away from controlling all aspects of government and the economy. That was Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA's Mohamed Al-Shinawi. During the coup in Burkina Faso last Friday, civilians and troops took to the streets with Russian flags saying they wanted the country's security partnership with France replaced by one with Russia. In this report from Ouagadougou, Henry Wilkins investigates how Russian disinformation played a part in the country's second coup in eight months. On October 2nd, Burkina Faso's new junta leader, Ibrahim Traoré, announced on national television that the previous coup leader had been ousted. Two days later, one of his soldiers could be seen waving a Russian flag while emerging from what apparently was a stolen UN armoured vehicle. The scenes on the street of Ouagadougou were chaotic. Nearby, outside the French embassy, protesters also waved Russian flags. He says Russia will help us because of the bloodshed and suffering of our military. Because of some politicians who do not have good governance, we want Russia, one protester shouts, before turning around and running towards the French embassy to attack. Protesters were pulling down razor wire and throwing burning projectiles over the compound walls. French forces inside the embassy retaliated with tear gas and a volley of warning shots. The protesters ran for cover. France has been a partner of Burkina Faso in its near seven-year war with militants linked to Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. But anti-French sentiment is rising. Many now think Russia is better suited to solve Burkina Faso's security problems. Evgeny Prigozhin, the founder of the controversial Wagner paramilitary group, has expressed his support for the country's new junta leader. In a report by French news agency, Agency France Press, Prigozhin said Traoré and his men have done what was necessary for the good of their people. Dressed in a hat and tunic in the colours of the Russian flag, Ismail Sawadogo, who runs a shop in Wagadougou's suburbs that flies a Russian flag on a pole outside, said he supports the Russian intervention. He says Russia has weapons and also a vision of how to help Africa. That is why he wants them to come and help in the fight. What Russia is doing in Mali is good and we know that it will be okay. Yes, security in Mali has improved and we can see that, he says. Asked where he got his Russian flag and clothes in Russian colours, he said he bought the textiles and had a tailor make them. Konstantin Guvi is an analyst with Netherlands-based research group, the Klingendale Institute. Guvi told VOA about how Russian intervention in neighbouring Mali is affecting security and the role Russian propaganda has played there. What we see in the case of Mali is that pro-Russian content tied to Russia emerged around the time that the junta uh, made a case for extending the transition and they later on made a case for bringing in Wagner. Uh, in terms of Wagner, what we've seen is that it's made things worse on virtually all indicators. Another analyst told VOA that Wagner has done nothing to improve the situation in Mali and is most interested in disrupting French policy efforts. Meanwhile, people like Pascal Dima are cashing in. He crisscrosses Ouagadougou on his motorcycle selling Russian flags to protesters. Dima told VOA he sells the flags for a thousand francs or one dollar fifty two each. People ask for them a lot. I had three hundred and fifty flags that I shared with a friend to sell. Today, this is the only one I have left, so I kept it for myself. I get them from a tailor for 800 francs each, he adds.
Although there are short-term gains for some, according to experts, it looks likely Russia will do more harm than good in finding a long-term solution to Burkina Faso's security problems. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Wagadougou, Burkina Faso. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Cornelius Tanner, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.